Does obedience have a cost? Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just a little religion in life, that's a shallow substitute for what God wants. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series on the life of Amy Carmichael. Today we'll be reminded of the fact that obedience does have a cost. We'll also hear from Jean Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth, who describes her as a Titus II woman. Was she pleasant to be around? We'll hear about that. Also, we'll hear from Dr. Richard Blackaby, an author and the president of Blackaby Ministries International. Right now, though, it's The Cost of Obedience, Part 3, Part 11 in our 24-part series on the Amy Carmichael story. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again today about the cost of of obedience. I've been giving you illustrations and stories from the life of Amy Carmichael in India, and some of you may have a little difficulty identifying with an Irish missionary at the turn of the century in such a faraway place. But there's always a cost of obedience to Jesus Christ. When we say cost, of course, we may be forgetting the rewards that he offers us. He tells us that we can't give up anything that's not going to be repaid a hundredfold or a thousandfold. And I would say to you today, if you give Jesus everything, you lose nothing. If you give him nothing, you lose everything. I've got two letters that I felt were so apropos to the things that I wanted to say today. I want to read you a few snatches from them. One woman says, I have found great understanding during this year and a half while my husband has been gone driving a truck over the road. We've been married almost 16 years, and I'm so thankful for an unusual, from what I can judge, wonderful marriage. Jerry has struggled and run from God for several years until the hound of heaven caught up with him a year ago. He would love to be home and is working toward that end. And then she says that as a woman home alone. Sometimes the loneliness is hard. And she's heard about the criticism heaped on husbands and fathers who are not at home every night. This makes them feel guilty. But she says, this has been such a time of growing in our lives. Each time he comes home, it's like a new romance. The loneliness is hard, but my heart would break over the bitterness of divorce and the permanence of death. I rode with Jerry for two weeks this summer and there is nothing romantic about long-haul trucking. How lonely to sit in a restaurant alone or have a weekend layover and not be able to attend church. He spends time every day soaking in the Word, something it is hard to find time for at home. The cost of obedience. In this man's case, it's driving a truck and having to be away from his family when he wants to be home and be a father to them and a husband to his wife. And then here's a young woman who says, when I quit work, our income was cut practically in half. 
Remember in my last talk I told you that Amy Carmichael realized the truth of the Tamil proverb, children tie the mother's feet, and she had to give up her very effective evangelistic work in order to stay home and take care of the children that God had given to her, rescued from temple prostitution. Well, here's a young woman in America today who was working, gave up her job in order to take care of her children, and was willing that her feet should be tied for the sake of him whose feet were nailed for us. Our income, she says, was cut practically in half. We felt then that it was a good possibility that we would have to give up our home. Well, we're at that point now. We sure haven't gotten any encouragement or positive reinforcement from our parents, especially mine. They live here in town close by. They think we've lost our minds. But we have decided that it's more important for me to be at home with my son, who is now five, and the one due in November, than to stay and strain just to keep a nice house. I'm ready to be a wife and a mother full-time, not part-time. That's what I've been doing since I quit. But we're going through withdrawal ourselves at the prospect of leaving this house. It's hard to let go of worldly things, no matter how spiritual we think we are. I'm just so aware of how God is stripping away things that I thought were so important. I gave up my name seven years after I was married, and I gave up my career, now my home, but I'm beginning to see God's sufficiency. It's easy to say sometimes, but when he really pulls the rug out from under you, what do you have left to stand on? Well, we have everything, don't we? We have Jesus Christ, the one who has promised to supply all our needs. Don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised when you find that your obedience to him is going to cost you something. But the rewards are unimaginable. There are are always spiritual battles. Amy Carmichael fought many battles in the spiritual world. The battle of prayer went on every day in the Donovore Fellowship, the work that she founded to rescue children from immoral purposes connected with Hindu temples. She spoke often of the woman's cost, a Hindu woman who became a Christian. And there were a number of those, but there were times in which the death penalty was that which had to be paid. There was misunderstanding. There were Amy's desperate attempts to arouse the conscience of people who could help her do something about child marriage and the custom of widows throwing themselves on the burning pyres when their husbands died and committing suicide in that way in order to accompany him into the afterlife. And people would listen politely. She would contact government officials, and they would often listen very politely and do nothing. She prayed that the Lord would give her fire words, words that would burn to the very marrow of people's bones, figuratively speaking, burn into their consciences. God's answer to her prayer for words was this, Thou shalt have words, but at this cost, that thou must first be burned, burned by red embers from a secret fire, scorched by fierce heats and withering winds that sweep through all thy being, 
carrying thee afar from old delights. Doth not the ardent fire consume the mountain's heart before the flow of fervent lava? Wouldst thou easefully, as from cool pleasant fountains, flow in fire? Perhaps I'm talking to some today whose responsibility is public speaking or writing. Do you ask God for fire words? Do you expect that it's going to cost you something? Amy Carmichael says thou must first be burnt. And she tells of contacting ten men who enjoyed all the talk of what she was trying to do, but they saw no tremendous reason for immediate exertion of any sort. They said that the evil was decreasing. Education, civilization, elevating influences would gradually and pleasantly permeate society. And Amy said, in the meantime, what about the perishing children? Ah, that was sad, they said, doubtless. That they should perish was indeed regrettable. But after all, how many were really imperiled? One old gentleman doubted it, though doubtless, he added cheerfully, unaware of the force of his admission, a change in the law is much required. She said people, in their kindness, tried to distract her from this that could not be forgotten. To be with them, hearing their talk so clear and friendly, reading their books, looking at their pleasant things, was like being in some clean green field, full of blessed flowers. But every now and then, the face of the field would fall in and discover a vault below. And in the vault, chains and darkness and the souls of young children. That was the work to which God had called Amy Carmichael. What it cost her to write the books that she wrote and to do the work that she did. And I think of how Amy then could not possibly have imagined the fruit in tens of thousands of readers of her books beyond her imaginings. I'm one of them. I'm one of those tens of thousands whose lives have been changed by the writings of Amy Carmichael. I have had so many people come up to me and say, you are to me what Amy Carmichael was to you. And of course, I can't really laugh in their faces, but I know how far I am from being an Amy Carmichael. And yet, if God in his mercy has chosen to use me as an instrument for the sake of some others, can they possibly realize how great is the fruit that has been born in my life because of the laid-down life of Amy Carmichael? Another custom, which I believe has now become illegal in India, was the custom of child marriage. And when Amy Carmichael went to the authorities to do what she could to try to stem the tide of child marriages, she was treated casually, sometimes with indifference, sometimes even with scorn. And in that, she had to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. There is no redemption without sacrifice. If God is going to use you and me for the redemption of the world, we are going to have to sacrifice something. I've just read you the letter of a young woman whose family was going to have to sacrifice their house 
in order to make it possible for her to stay home and take care of her children, a sacrifice which she felt was well worthwhile. Do you understand why we call this program Gateway to Joy? Well, it's because it's a small gate and it's a narrow road that we have to stoop to go through and be willing to be limited in order to walk. But the end is joy. Through that small gateway, God leads us out into largeness of life. You have no idea of the rewards that God may have in store for you if you will stoop and humble yourself and pay the price of obedience. That was The Cost of Obedience, Part 3, the 11th installment in the Amy Carmichael story. Later on, we'll hear two references that are very important in the introduction to many of the Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy programs. We'll have that in a little bit. First, though, it's Gene Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth Elliott, who talks about how Elizabeth was a Titus II woman. And she'll uh, tell us a bit about whether Elizabeth was a pleasant person to be around. I had somebody from my church who was an older lady that I actually spent, physically spent time with once a week, and, and she taught me how to pray consistently. But with Elizabeth, it was, you know, of course from a distance, but she was definitely one of my tightest two women. Mm-hmm. And it was a joy getting to be with her. I, I just think about the times I was in her home and, and um, when she would play the piano and we'd sing hymns and, and um, just, you know, it was just a blessing to get to be with her. And then when she was in my home one time, I mean, you know, she was just, you know, she was just pleasant to be around. <laughs> Longtime Charleston friend of Elizabeth and Lars, that was Jean Hamilton. Right now, get ready for the Cost of Obedience 4. And if you have your Bible nearby, turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 3, and Deuteronomy 33, 27. Uh, she'll repeat those references in just a little bit. Here's the Cost of Obedience 4, as we're reaching the halfway point in the 24-part Amy Carmichael story. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. That verse, in fact, is to be found in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. And underneath are the everlasting arms. You can find that in Deuteronomy 33:27. Those of you that listen to me know that I quote these two verses for you every day. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time, again about the cost of obedience. We've been talking about Amy Carmichael's having to pay the cost of obedience in her missionary work in South India. And when she began to take care of little children whom she had rescued from a life of immorality in the Hindu temples, of course she needed help. And so she gathered around her some young Indian women. Some of them were the ones who had traveled with her in her itineration. And she began to train them to do what she always called mother work. I'm sure that there are some people whose lives are bound up with mother work listening to me today, and I hope that today's program will be an encouragement to you. Some of these Indian women were high caste. The caste system 
was very strong in India, probably stronger in Amy Carmichael's day than it is now. But I understand that in some areas, it is extremely strong still. And caste meant, for one thing, that you only did certain kinds of work. High caste people did practically no work at all. And in the descending scale of caste, people did dirtier and dirtier and humbler work. Well, the kind of work that Amy Carmichael was doing herself and asking sometimes high-caste women to do with her was considered the lowest of the low. Washing diapers, bathing little babies, cutting tiny little toenails, and making formulas and feeding these babies. It was very difficult for Amy to get across to these high-caste women, even though they were Christians, that there was nothing too low for a Christian to do for the sake of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus himself had taken a towel and knelt down to wash the disciples' feet, assuming the position of the lowest slave in an Eastern household. This was a very powerful lesson for these Indian women and one they could understand because it was so similar to their own culture. And yet, that didn't make it easy. I find the same thing is true with myself. I can understand sometimes the lessons that God is trying to teach me. I know very well what he's saying. It's easy to understand, but it's not easy to obey. There's always a cost. And Amy Carmichael had to try to get across to these women that, like any other work, the work of caring for little children was God's work. Whether they were sweeping a mud floor, scrubbing a tile floor, washing the diapers by hand, making up a formula to feed a little starving baby, it was God's work. As Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it for one of the least of these my brothers, you've done it for me. Our aim Amy Carmichael said, is nothing less than to walk with God all day. That had been the aim of the Keswick Convention in England, the group that had first sent her to the mission field. But it was a shocking notion to these women, a shocking notion to think that the nature of the work made no difference whatever. As St. Francis de Sales said, God rewards his servants not because of the dignity of the office, but because of the humility with which it is performed. I had a letter not long ago from a young man who had been farming for some 10 years or so. I think the man was in his 30s, as I recall. He was not married. He lived near his parents, and he felt a responsibility to continue to helped to take care of his parents and to serve them in any way that he could. But he didn't really want to farm. He believed that God was calling him into his service. And he wondered about the possibility of missionary work, and he asked me various questions in his letter. But when I wrote back to him, I raised the question with him as to whether or not he had considered the possibility that farming was the service to which God had called him just to continue humbly and faithfully to do his work there on the farm and to serve his parents nearby in whatever way they might need, had he considered the fact, the possibility, 
that God might have called him to do just this and nothing else? Farming, truck driving, washing diapers, sitting at an office desk, teaching a class, cleaning a room. Whatever the work may be to which God has called us, it is that and that alone that will glorify him. We glorify God by obedience. It doesn't make any difference what prestige or respect your job may hold in the eyes of the world. What matters is whether or not it's offered to God. Now, of course, with a large family of children, a growing family of children, such as Amy Carmichael had, there were many needs. How those needs were supplied was a question that was often asked. It was her policy not even to tell those who asked what the needs were. It was her policy to tell only God. One time, for example, they needed 20 pounds for rice because the price had risen that week by 20 pounds. During that week, the only gift that they received in the mail was a gift for exactly 20 pounds. On another occasion, they needed money in order to make a journey to rescue a child. A Christian had found a child who was about to be dedicated to prostitution in a Hindu temple. He had persuaded the people responsible for that child to let him have it and take it to Amy Carmichael's work. And so somebody needed to make a journey in order to meet that man with the child. It would take two days to cash a check. They couldn't wait that long. But that day, a money order arrived. Amy wrote, We piled the silver on the floor, knelt around it, and thanked God. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and He gives it to us. His supply is not a myth. Her co-worker, Ponimal, was taking care of 16 babies while Amma, Amy Carmichael's name, was away. The 16 babies came down with dysentery. Amy was away, so ill herself that she couldn't travel. Ten babies died. Ponimal wrote to her, but Jesus stays with me. Can you imagine the thoughts that went through Amy's mind at the time? She was tormented with doubts. Should they have refused the babies? Were there too many properly to take care of? Should they have settled for just any help they could get, forgetting the principle of gold, silver, and precious stones? Another one of her rules was that they would not accept any except lovers of Jesus Christ, to work in the Donovore Fellowship. Ponimel was one of those pure gold, thoroughgoing women who could be totally trusted. Ponimel had done all she could do, but 10 of the 16 babies had died. And Ponimel wrote to Amy this, let us work until we drop, but let us never lower the standard. Sometimes mission candidates were sent and they had to be returned because, as Amy put it, they were accustomed to walking on the beaten track. It was her prayer that obstacles might be placed in the way of every candidate so that if there was any way at all that they could be turned back from volunteering for service in Donovore, 
they would be turned back because she felt that those who were truly called could not possibly be turned back. Sometimes she would even pray that any foolish rumor or silly story about the Donovore Fellowship or about Amy herself would reach the ears of those candidates so that they would not want to come if, in fact, God had not really called them to come. She insisted not just on a high regard for truth in those who worked with her, but on a delicate regard for truth. On this point, she said, we are adamant. One of the questions she asked candidates was, is the cross the attraction? Seeking to live in the shadow of the cross meant that there were times when they were thought very peculiar by other people, sometimes by other missionaries and other Christians. And she said, we seem to be judging them when in truth we are only seeking humbly to obey. The core of the Donovore work was prayer. That was the core of every day. And the gold cord, as Amy called it, which held the family together, was love. She said, we have one crystal clear reason, apart from the blessed happiness of this way of life. It is this, prayer is the core of our day. Take prayer out and the day would collapse, would be pithless, a straw blown in the wind. But how can you pray, really pray, I mean, with one against whom you have a grudge or whom you have been discussing critically with another? Try it. You will find it cannot be done. And so, as all her writings testify, prayer and love always went hand in hand. Prayer costs, love costs. The cost of obedience. Again, those references mentioned early in the program, Jeremiah 31.3 and Deuteronomy 33.27. Right now, let's hear from Dr. Richard Blackaby, an author and the president of Blackaby Ministries International. He says that he and his dad, Henry Blackaby, used to go to bookstores, and there was one time they came across a particular book from a particular author. I was just remembering uh, going with my dad to use bookstores. Uh, that was one of the favorite things I did with him growing up, one of my favorite memories of father and son time. And uh, my dad would always kind of take me over to the uh, Christian book section and uh, or, or the biography section, and and uh, and we'd look for treasures. And uh, he would say, "Oh, this is a this is a classic. You have to you have to read this. And oh, anything that this person writes, you have to get that." And I remember one day coming across a book by Elizabeth Elliot, and immediately my dad grabbed that and said, "Oh, you've got to read anything by her." And, uh, and you've got to be familiar with the story of her husband giving his life and missions. And, and uh, so I, that was my first, um, my first introduction uh, to the Elliots was my dad excitedly telling me about what wonderful Christian people that they were and uh, how insightful they were. And uh, so I began just to read everything that I could about them and by them and uh, great quotes from them. And uh, even just today, as I was going to record this, my son-in-law was uh, telling me about just his memories of listening to Elizabeth's uh, radio broadcasts and telling 
the the listeners that they were loved with an everlasting love and that's something that he still remembers to this day and so our family in just various ways has been blessed by the Elliot story and witness and uh, especially just by their faithfulness uh, even in adversity to keep trusting the Lord and his love and to continue to give their lives in service to him uh, our lives our family are blessed because they did Dr. Richard Blackaby, an author and the president of Blackaby Ministries International. Well, that's about it for our program today. A listener writes, thank you for sharing Elizabeth's recordings. She was such a wise woman because of God's work in her life. She has blessed me in my life, and I can't wait to meet this sister in heaven when we all glorify our eternal God. Hey, we'd invite you to uh, leave a review as well, wherever you're hearing this podcast. Well, let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you as you jog, wherever we found you today. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, talks, devotionals, videos, and more. ElizabethElliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you daily, yes, you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms 